Hey everyone, it's Cappy, and it's our season finale. I want to give a shout out to all of our guests from this season of Beyond the Plate, as well as all of the bartenders from this season's Beyond the Drink episodes, and to all of our amazing partners for their support, Ford's Gin, Cherio Tomatoes, Martin's Famous Potato Rolls, Falk Salt, Real Good Fish, Wickles Pickles, One Hope Wine. We thank you. The Beyond the Plate team is going to take a little break and we'll be back for season seven before you know it. Believe it or not, we're more than halfway booked for next season and are grateful every day for our listeners, our guests, and our partners. We have some exciting things for next season, so make sure you hit that subscribe button on your podcast player or follow us on social media at BT Plate Podcast, or you can follow me at On Cappy's Plate. And Beyond the Plate would not be Beyond the Plate without the amazing team that brings this podcast to life. So big thank you to Ian Cohen, Joe Yetton, Sean Petrosian, Sarah McClellan, me, and Jeffrey Goldford. With that, tick, 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 tick. Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who help make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Ford's Gin. All right, everyone, here's the deal. If you're like me, you enjoy a good gin and tonic or a Negroni, or maybe you're a martini person. Regardless, if we're still on the same page here, seeing multiple gin bottles at a bar, restaurant, or liquor store may be a little daunting. Here's where Ford's Gin comes into play. It was crafted by bartenders, for bartenders, and at-home bartenders alike to make a really, really good gin cocktail. Hear more on that in this season's bonus episode, episode 12, with the man himself, Simon Ford of Ford's Gin. Simon Ford noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all of these drinks while keeping it at an accessible price? Thank you, Simon Ford. Personally speaking here, I fell in love with the gin and tonic on a trip to northern Spain. The beauty and the finesse that they use to make a gin and tonic in Spain is like no other drink I've seen. They put these ice cubes in like a goblet and then they paint them with a lemon peel and they show you the gin bottle. It's like a presentation. They pour it down over the ice. They pour in the tonic and then it's one, maybe two stirs with a long spoon and done. It's like a work of art, literally. I talked a little about my love of this style drink in episode 17 this season with Chef Ken Oranger, by the way. And thanks to Joe Jebeline on this season of Beyond the Drink, I now love a good Gin Ricky. And also thanks to Masa for all his martini tips. I've come to enjoy a good martini with a pinch of salt, of course. I actually love being schooled by all of these bartenders in this season of Beyond the Drink episodes, so make sure you check those out. And here's another reason why I love Ford's Gin. They've been giving back to the bartending community for quite some time. I've personally been to events they've supported and learn more about their initiatives from Simon Ford in our bonus episode. Whether it's sponsoring nonprofit fundraisers, bartender funds, culinary events, whatever it may be, they always have the bartending community in mind. To learn more about Ford's Gin, go to FordsGin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Ford's Gin, we thank you. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. 
Martins is an all-American family-owned and operated company founded in 1955 and headquartered in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. That's over 65 years of people eating and loving Martins' famous potato rolls. They're the number one branded potato roll in America, and as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. Personally, I love their potato rolls. My twins love their cinnamon raisin bread. I recently fell in love with their hoagie roll. You may have heard I created a fish sandwich in episode 17 this season, which then made it into its own cook-along bonus episode. Check that out, episode 18. Regardless of which bread item of theirs you love, well, they're all delicious, Martin's has been setting the gold standard for potato rolls since their famous sandwich potato rolls first hit farmer's markets and then later grocery stores. These are the rolls that have helped many chefs and restaurants win top honors in burger contests all over the country. By the way, New York City Wine and Food Festival Burger Bash is just around the corner this month. Check out nycwff.org backslash burger for more information on that event. While I love all of Martin's products, here's why I also love them. Their mission encompasses more than just baking the best bread and providing good American jobs. They also believe in giving back to their community and the world around them. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations, such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need both close to their baking facilities and abroad. To learn more about Martin's and check out some great recipes, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on social media at potatorolls. Martin's, we thank you. Hey everyone, one more thing before we get going. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. All right, enjoy this week's episode. Let's test your audio. Name 10 commonly used Ethiopian spices for me. Berbere, that's the spice blend that has eight other spices in. So I would say that's a good one. Uh, It's not a spice, but coffee. Coffee is used a lot. Yeah. And of course, fenugreek and cardamom, ginger, all of that stuff. Love it. All right, cool. Today's guest is behind a number of restaurants around the world, including, I'll call it a flagship, Red Rooster Harlem. He was the guest chef for President Obama's first date dinner and most recently was tasked with choosing the 10 chefs that cooked at the Met Gala. He's won multiple James Beard Foundation Awards, was champion of Top Chef Masters and Chopped All-Stars, is the head judge of the new show, Top Chef Family Style, has a podcast called This Moment, is the author of several cookbooks, including the New York Times bestselling memoir, Yes, Chef, a memoir, and his latest book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. In between taking over the world with his 900 projects, he's also a philanthropist, serving as co-chair of careers through culinary arts program, working with City Harvest, being a UNICEF ambassador, and him and his wife are the co-founders of the Three Goats organization. And that's not even everything he does, but I'd like to get this conversation started. So please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with a man who is looking for a job because he clearly doesn't have enough to do, Chef Marcus Samuelson. Hey, how are you? Right. No, as an immigrant in this country, you always have to work to define this. There's like that one that, you know, there's always people said that immigrants are lazy. We don't do anything. So I'm here to tell you we're not lazy. We work. (laughs) Clearly, clearly. But when you hear that all that list of accomplishments, which, as I mentioned, is not everything. How does that make you feel? Well, I tell you what, Gabby, I I would say like this. It makes me feel very lucky and privileged because all of those projects, I had real moments of joy, 
right? There's a purpose, like writing the rise. There was a purpose on the why, right? Like never want to write a book where I feel it's already there. All the cookbooks, when I wrote Aquavit cookbook, there was no really modern Scandinavian cookbook. And that was 20 years ago, you know? Or when I, you know, started to write this journey on my African book in 2007 or whatever, you know, I didn't feel there was a language for it that could bridge that at the same time. So I, it takes me four years to write a cookbook. The first 18 months is really questioning the why, right? And, and once you have the why, then you go for it, right? But also, no, I smiled because I've also been involved with all of those projects. None of them I did by myself. So I was always surrounded with amazing people that were super passionate and this thing called hospitality and food. Because whether you start in a restaurant or you work in a cookbook or you do a podcast, the reason why we're together and doing it is because we love food. Yeah, 100%. So this is the kind of question we usually end our episodes with. But what's next for you? Like, what, what, is there something you want to do that you haven't done? Yeah, I mean, I, yes. Uh, and I feel like as a chef, if you don't have that urge, it might be time to do something else, right? So for me, it's, I've been on this journey on plant-based and plant-forward and thinking about that and what that looks like. And, you know, what's our responsibility as chefs that has platforms that we can communicate to a large audience? So plant-based, it, every, every year, right, it's almost like we accept the fires in California or we see the, the rain. Or we see this extreme weather and we act like, Oh, that has nothing to do with us, but it has everything to do with us, right? So how can we as chefs take care, take better care of the environment for the next generation? I think it's, it's, it's a bunch of things. It's, it's, you know, I have a young son and you start thinking about the relationship. How do you want to hand over the world to the next generation? If we can cook great food that tastes amazing, why couldn't we put good food that is good for the environment and for our soul and so on? So so that's something that I know it's coming. And our next restaurant in New York, what we're going to do in Chelsea, will be very much planned forward. I love it. I love it. Okay, so we like to ask people about their childhood because I feel, well, their past helps shape who they are today, right? So your path, your journey is extremely interesting to me. I think a lot of people know it, especially if they read your book. But take me back to Ethiopia. To be honest, my sister, she was, she was five when we were adopted and I was two. So she is really the one that has talked much more about it, knows much more about it. I learned more about Ethiopia as a, as, you know, a teenager and a 20 something, you know, when you started, it was, was more interesting. We wanted to start to go back and, and eventually we got, went back to Ethiopia. But I would say, you know, my sister and I, we were born in a small village my mom, sister, and I had tuberculosis. My mother took us to a hospital. We passed, uh, she passed away. And here's really where luck, right? I would never, ever take that part away from it. From, and we all need it. And it's like luck and fortune and goodness of others. And the nurse at the hospital, she had three kids on her own, single mother. She took us in because we were two young kids now with no mother, no parents. And she knew that we can't just throw these kids back out on the street. So she just took us in, uh, which was basically not legal, but she did it until she could set up an adoption agency for us. It took another three to four months. 
And just because you're part of an adoption agency doesn't mean that you're going to get adopted right away. And then eventually we became adopted to Sweden. And then, you know, that's when my childhood began in a different way. And it was, you know, I, I can't say thank you enough to the nurse and to my parents that guided me in Sweden, my grandparents. And you know, I grew up, I was very fortunate to have great parents and a great community around me. How would you describe young Marcus? Well, I mean, I... I've always been a happy child. You know, I was always active. I was playing a lot of soccer. I was doing two things a lot. I was playing soccer and I was cooking early, cooking with my grandmother and playing soccer with my friends. And these were the two sort of like uh, parallel things in my life that got me excited. And when I say cooking in Sweden, it's like foraging. You go out mushroom hunting with your older siblings. You go fishing with your uncles. So it wasn't just cooking by the stove. It was Everything that that encompasses, you know, learning about the boats, learning how to fix a net, learning how to smoke and cure, all of that stuff. And then the opposite of that was just playing soccer with my friends. Those are the two moments. Do you remember the first thing you ever cooked? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was cooking. I mean, I was helping out a lot, like working, you know, with my grandmothers, like rolling meatballs. That stuff we did since we were like four, five, six years old. That was just part of going to our house. But I remember like cooking for my uncles and my dad when I was like 11 and we, we caught this great mackerel and I had to like, they were down at the boat. My mom and my sisters were not around. My grandparents weren't around. So like, Marcus, if you fix the fish, we have to fix the boat. And an hour later, they, would, they came back and I had like mashed potatoes with seared mackerel and some chopped chives because we have chives and fennel growing in the garden. And it was a good meal. I love it. Wait, how old is your son now? Five. Is he into food or cooking at all? He's into everything that smashes and splashes and not so much eating it, but like cracking an egg is cool. And when I say, oh, it's water in the pan, be careful. That's when he runs to the pan and, you know, chopping things, everything, you know, he's a boy. So everything that smash, crash, and is borderline dangerous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Do you still cook any of those family recipes that you, that you learned growing up like oh. to this day? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We just cooked, actually just did uh, meatballs for him two days ago. I did vegetarian meatballs. <laughs> What'd you do? It's so funny. I, I have three-year-old twins yeah. and I literally was just making meatballs with them two days ago also, which is wild. I'd never done it before. I'm like, screw it. Who cares if they make a mess? We're know? doing it. Exactly. I did some uh, great, I mean, we had fun. It was sweet potatoes that I used, roasted sweet potatoes, and just some uh, soaked couscous, and just rolled them up, and we seared them. They were delicious. Anything just to to be busy in that kitchen, you know. Totally. Yeah. Does your wife cook? She does. She does a lot. But she cooks basically the Ethiopian holidays. It was just New Year's and so on. She cooks the big holidays, and I'll probably cook half of it. Uh, the regular food or, you know, when I'm home and also when I travel, of course, then she stepped in and cooks much of the home. Do you remember the first thing you ever made for her? Yeah. I mean, I wanted to, she cooked for me pretty early. She cooked a really good Ethiopian chicken stew. That's confidence, huh? Yeah. 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 I, I brought her to the restaurant and, and made sure like she had to have some good grub you know, like I'm not 
I knew I could not compete in the Ethiopian space. So yeah. that's the other way. That's so funny. So you mentioned Ethiopia. This is interesting. I, I've heard you or read that you've said food is often viewed through a strong spiritual lens there. Can you explain that? Yeah. Spirituality and food. I mean, you think about countries like Ethiopia, even India and so on. You know, the majority of the food, you, the compass is really driven by what religion. And religion is not something you go to on a Sunday or, or, or once a week. It's part of your everyday life, right? So once then you're under that sort of schedule and, and commitment, that drives then what fasting days you have. It doesn't matter whether you're Christian, Muslim, or Jewish. There's a bunch of, of fasting days, whether you, some days you don't drink water before noon. Some days you take butter out of your, your fasting. A lot of times you don't eat meat. So when you do, when you break that fast, the celebration around meat becomes big and festive. And that's kind of what we've gone away from in, in the West and in America because we eat big 8, 9, 10, 12 ounce portions of, of animal protein and our bodies are not used to process that because we don't work, most of us don't work on fields anymore or don't do that type of labor. So there's no way to work that body, that, that off. And also we mix a lot. We're one of the few cultures that have sushi on a Tuesday, burger on a Wednesday, pizza on a Thursday, because we love to eat like that, right? We just do. It's so funny you say that because I feel like, and I'm blinking, but some other chef in, in a different season of the podcast mentioned that. And it r reminded me that, like, you know, I work with Rachel Ray and she has this point of view sometimes with food. I remember forever ago, she's like, hey, where do you want to go to dinner tonight? I was like, oh, let's go get Mexican. And she's like, no, I can't have Mexican. I had yeah, like Italian for lunch. I'm like, what? So, and like her, it's interesting no, she, that. She's right. Because this mixing, is, it's, it's fun and we all do it, right? We all, you've done it. I've done it many, many times because we love to enjoy food like that. But this processing, it does something to us. And I think that's also when you look at food as medicine or, or, or holistically in a different way, it, it is a challenge to mix and match, you know? Yeah. Okay. So I started the episode listing, you know, some of your accomplishments. Can you just take us through like a quick bullet of what, what would you say are highlights of your career starting with like, start with being an apprentice? I always say the most successful day in my life was a professional life was the day when I got the letter to work in France, to work for free for a year in France, because it was a three-star Michelin restaurant. It was something my parents and I have had as a goal for years to do. We applied to three-star Michelin restaurants. We got many no's and eventually got one yes. So it's always been a goal for me to be part of that and work in a three-star Michelin restaurant. I knew, of course, what I got into. It was really working for a whole year for free, but I learned a lot. I learned a ton. I wouldn't want to change it. I would also say the day when we opened Red Rooster, it was a seven or eight years journey of thinking about it, moving to Harlem. I literally moved from Midtown to Harlem. I didn't think that, I knew that I didn't have enough knowledge about the community to do it from Midtown where I lived before. So I had to move and I enjoyed it, but I also had to learn from the community, from elders and people who've lived there for a long time. And I studied and I couldn't have opened before, but I didn't. And so the day when we opened felt like, yes, we, we achieved something. Yeah. 
did you apprentice in Austria too? Yeah, Austria, Switzerland, Japan, and uh, France. Oh, you apprenticed in Japan. And then you came to the U.S. to work at Aquavit first, yeah. right? Yeah, as a sous chef, yeah. At what point in your career did you realize you'd made it as a chef? I don't think I've ever thought about it from that point of view. Because food humbles you constantly. And also what I love now is that there's great younger generation coming up that doing things that we didn't do when we were coming up. And I think, you know, I'm, I love cooking and I don't think comfort is ever part of it. And when you say like you made it, you, it's, it's, it's a, it scares me because it's like, it's, it's also acknowledging a level of comfort. And I, I just don't, I create better in the sense of like, well, I've always got something on my, looking over my shoulder and I think it's the athlete in me. You always knew there's another kid out there working. It's just as hard. There's always a talented kid out there. Like I, I just treat it that way, you know? Yeah. I love that. Okay. But at, so at 20, you're 24 years old, you become the executive chef of Aquavit and the youngest chef ever to receive three star review from the New York times. It seems like that may have been a big deal coming from being an apprentice in Europe. Mm, yeah, maybe. I don't look at it like that at all. I felt like at that point, I've been, I've been working with some of the best people in the world in different languages where English wasn't even part of the conversation. So I felt like coming to New York was so much easier because I could, all I had to do was continue to cook at a very high level, which I did every day before that. And I could do it in English, which wasn't my first language, but it was definitely my second language, right? So in many ways, I felt at home in New York in a different way, and it helped me versus in when you work in France or you work in Switzerland, I, it was always lost in translation. You know, I, at that point, I've been working professionally for, for six, seven years at a very hard pace. So coming to America, I just felt I didn't even know what it meant. There was no Internet. Like, so I didn't know what food and wine, gourmet, bon app. All of that meant, but like, we got a good review. Well, I like, guess what? We should get a good review, but we work very, very hard. So I'm like, I, I, at that point, I've never been part of a restaurant that didn't get a good review. You know what I mean? So it was just something that we did. Uh, and if we work hard and you have a good team and you have great ingredients, of course, later on a year into it, I started to understand like, wow, we're packed every day. We're packed on Mondays now. We're packed on Sundays. So I started to understand the impact, but when the review came out, everybody was excited around me. I had no clue what that meant. And that's part of being 23, 24 years old. You know, you're just a kid. Sure. What's your point of view on reviews now? Similar? No, I think, I mean, it's a completely different landscape, right? You have to understand that at that point, there was basically three types of reviews, maybe four. There was New York Times that you got, if you're lucky, every four or five years. It's like an Olympic game. Sagat, but you got, which is kind of like this public sort of like boom, almost an extension of what became of the online reviews, right? But in a different way. And then maybe once or twice you would get a new magazine review, right? So the review was so important, but I didn't know all of that at that point, right? But there was not that much dialogue with reviewers that, so... It was just a different way. Once internet and food connected it, I would say five, six, seven years later, really 2001, 2002, when you really connected, you know, the Yelps, every, all of that stuff. 
it changed the landscape forever. So I think we need it all. We need online reviews. We need public reviews. We need establishment review. We need it all. But if you focus on the concept you want to do, that is still end of the day. And listen to your customers, right? We've all, I've closed restaurants with great reviews, right? We've all seen a movie that had been reviewed incredibly well. We all, you know, that won the Oscars, but didn't do well, right? So end of the day, you've got to listen to your customer. So you mentioned you've closed restaurants that had good reviews. You opened quite a few restaurants, closed some. Is that difficult for you? When you close a restaurant, for me, it's all chefs, we go through it. I mean, there's not one chef that, that you know at a certain level that's not open successful restaurants and haven't closed. And we all take close, closings very differently. But no matter what happens, it's a dark moment. And for me, it's like the longest hangover you can imagine. Because there's so much that goes in to opening a restaurant, right? That energy you get, yes, we're going to do it. And... Everybody from the line cook to the dishwasher to being a chef is that a tribe, my father was a tribe leader in Ethiopia, like a tribe says, we believe in you, chef. We're going to do this together. So much of that energy of that restaurant is about that wave that you get. Once you can't do that anymore, for whatever reason, right? And when you sign on to do that, that means that the dishwasher knows that you're going to deal with the landlord and figure it out. That means that the servers mean that says, hey, chef, I believe in you. You're going to make sure that we're going to be busy on a Monday. I'm leaving this place to go to work for you. So when you close all of those dreams, vision, and every service meeting you've had, every dish, every purveyor that you want to work with, so that for me is, is hard. It is, it's a long time, and it's hard to get up on that and get back up on the horse and say, screw it, we're going to do it again. Is there any point in your career, whether in Europe or here, that you ever wanted to throw in the towel? No, no. I mean, there's two times in my life that I've had major doubt of what the hell am I doing. It's 20 years anniversary, right, of 9-11. And right after 9-11, I was completely in doubt of why am I in America? Why don't I just go back home? Who cares about a fine dining restaurant at this moment? You almost felt guilty working and like, could, I, could we work? All of those questions. And I spoke, you know, I just spoke recently to Michael Monaco on my podcast where he talked about, you know, he lost 72 staff members that horrible day. You know, I knew 20 of them, but, you know, or so. But, you know, so we're just working through that. That was probably like the darkest moment for me. It's like, what do I, what do, I do here? And it was definitely part of, eventually moving and, and going to Harlem and really asking myself deeper questions like, what's your role as a chef? You have to do more. And uh, the pandemic, right? What, what happened in March, in late February, early March, we had to close Red Rooster. We converted it into community kitchen and worked with Jose for World Central Kitchen. You were there. I mean, it was, it was right around South Beach Food and Wine 2020 when all of that stuff started to happen. And eventually we got through both of those moments. This one we're still in. But those were the two moments for me, that spring of 2020, where I, I knew I had to put that cap on and be like, okay, we can do it. But even when I left home, I had doubts myself. And so much part of being a leader is that show the world that you can do it. Although as a person, you had major doubts. And I, was, I went home, it's like, what's actually going to happen? This is bigger than all of us, 
there was a week in early March where I didn't pick up my phone because every phone call was about we're closing Stockholm, we're closing London, we're closing. <laughs> and of course, eventually I had to get out of that groove and, and deal with it, but it was tough. It was rough. Man, thanks for sharing that. It's tough. We like talking about that with uh, a bunch of different chefs and hearing their story and all that. It's, it's wild. All right, I want to take a second to give some love to one of our partners over at Real Good Fish. I actually subscribed to this company before this podcast season. I've received multiple boxes of seafood from them, and there's something about getting a box of fresh seafood that you know has a good story behind it, and it supported a local fisherman, and sustainable practices were used. It just makes you feel good. Plus, the ocean smell you get when you open that box is fantastic. Real Good Fish offers the freshest seafood direct from fishermen who value sustainability and it's delivered with full transparency. They have directly supported over 89 local fishermen and you can now enjoy seamless home delivery from them across all U.S. states. More about their transparent sourcing information. When you receive the seafood, you know who caught your fish, how it was caught, where it was caught, and on which vessel it was caught, literally. I think I mentioned I cooked some rockfish from them earlier this season. I've also had calamari, flounder, and plenty of other options that they've sent as well. I again cooked some rockfish the other week when I made that spicy fish sandwich from our bonus episode. But this rockfish was from a different fisherman. The fisherman's name was Richard de Yerl. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, Richard. The name of his fishing vessel was called Sea Harvest One, and it was caught in Moss Landing. It also has the gear he used, the date it was caught, some pretty cool stuff. Anyhow, their fish and seafood travels an average distance from the boat to plate of 170 miles. Compare that to the national average of 5,000 miles. I know this sounds crazy, but sometimes seafood literally goes overseas and back. Here's what I love about Real Good Fish. They believe in giving back to their community through a program called Bay to Tray. They work with California school districts and institutions and have created a revolutionary solution that unifies their coastal communities. They do this by providing children more nutritious meals and empowering them to be the next generation of environmental stewards. To learn more about Real Good Fish and sustainable seafood, as well as their memberships, community pickup sites, and nationwide home delivery, go to realgoodfish.com and follow them on social media at realgoodfish. They have some great Instagram lives and some great content up there. Real Good Fish, we thank you. All right, let's switch gears here to the restaurant world, which we've talked about, but in a different point of view. And speaking of fish... Marcus at Baja Mar Fish and Chop House. Yeah. Is the local seafood there just incredible? I imagine these boats just like pulling up and getting this delicious fish. <laughs> it is amazing to go out fishing with the boats in Bahamas. It's very seasonal what you can catch. And uh, we don't drive. That's why a lot of the menu, you know, the seafood that we have on, it's, it's basically by, you know, about two weeks ahead, what's going to come in in terms of, for the seasonality and then you change it around it. And there is so much good stuff out there that we actually don't even, you know, for example, something like conch. It's fascinating to me how much it's celebrated maybe in Florida and in, 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 in Bahamas, but the rest of the U.S. doesn't really know what it is, right? And, you know, we, we know so much about seafood, but there's certain things that just doesn't really enter our culture in a way. 
And there's tons of great lionfish and other fishes that doesn't really come even to the East Coast, although this is on the East Coast, right? So it's great when New Yorkers come down there because they're very open-minded to try things when they're there, but they might not order conch in New York. Right. Okay, so when you open in a new city, country, island, how important is that local factor to you versus doing like Marcus Staples? You know, Andrew, I've been, I think we all have different sort of advantages and structures in life. And I think that, you know, for me, I've been an immigrant seven times, right? I lived in seven different countries. So, and also I think part of being black is also being outsider looking in on certain things. So I understand how to assimilate and I understand how early, how, you know, I looked at, you come to a great, not a good food city like Montreal, a great food city like New York. I live in Montreal. If you don't have any chance of being part of the city's fabric of food, you need to first tip your hat to the community that made it all possible, right? So for me, it's like when I open in a foreign city, a country, I go back and think about how do I feel when I move to New York? Like, how do I feel, you know, those first years? So for me, it's like three years before we open the restaurant, I go up, I eat, I visit the markets, and then... 18 months later, and like I go back several times with the family and then eventually with my business partners, then maybe do a pop-up with the local chefs. Sometimes absolutely not the big, most famous one. It could be a charity. It could be just so you have an understanding of the fabric uh, of the city. How does this city work? Especially a beautiful city like Montreal, where you have the push and pull between the French and the British and back and forth and then the Caribbean there. And you understand that in terms of its food, it's incredible. That is no different whether I do that in Florida, Bahamas, or Montreal, or Stockholm. Respect the locale. Be grateful for the people and the audience that sort of is there. And then do your best work, you know? Yeah. Okay, so I have a question. You're young. You were at Aquavie. You, you're known for Scandinavian cuisine. Was it hard to veer away you knew, you apprenticed, like you said, Japan, Austria, all this, you know, but in New York and the US, they knew you for the Scandinavian cuisine. Was it hard to veer away from that and do, I think you opened Ringo while you were still at Aquavit, which had some Japanese influences. Was it hard to veer away from Scandinavian cuisine to do what you were doing at Ringo? No, I mean, I think one of the things that's going to, why am I so passionate about cooking today? I'm more passionate than I was maybe when I started it's because change forces an energy, right? That teach me, I have to learn, right? If I would do the same food today as I did in 1997, there's no, you and I wouldn't even be talking. Do you know what I mean? It would be stale, it wouldn't be interesting. And change is very, very important for me as a chef. Each chef is different. So for me, I feel like these waves are coming every five years, right? So Ringo was in early 2000s. Well, I've been in America for seven years at that point. It was time for me to do something different. And, you know, I think that it, it teaches me so much about the subculture. And, you know, now we're thinking a lot about plant forward food. I'm studying every day, you know, should it be cell stem meats? What is that? You know, aquaponic, all of these different things that it forces me to think about, you know, like, in fine dining, you learned it was one way. The food came from France. It was three-star Michelin was to go. That was one 
incredible, almost like ballerina-esque way of cooking. Then you realize that the world is so much larger than that. Good food is everywhere. Once I came to America, I realized that window was so much larger. So I just didn't want to be in one pocket with one goal, right? And it allows me also to, and I watch a lot of great chefs being super unhappy, even if they had two or three stars, right? The restaurants maybe weren't busy. They didn't make money. And they lived these, they were just tied to one thing. And I'm like, how do I navigate? Where do I fit into all this? Also, my role as a black chef, how can I bring, how can I open more doors for people of color, right? So it's all of these different things that I have to think about in order to evolve myself, improve constantly. Because when you're a student or a cook or a sous chef or a chef, it's very easy because you learn from somebody and you're going to get better. Once you own a business, you got to put yourself into these classes. you got to force yourself to do that. And for me, it's been very often through a product like a restaurant. Interesting. Really interesting. So you also co-produce the annual Harlem Eat Up Festival, celebrates food, art, culture of Harlem. Describe that festival to us. Pitch it to the audience. How do you yeah. say it? You know, I just, uh, first of all, that I've been invited so many times to so many great events like South Beach Food and Wine, like New York City Food and Wine, and, and so on, right? And I was like, wait a minute, why is, for me, the coolest part of New York City not part of that? I want people to experience this part of town that is so rich on culture, so many great people. But when Herb and I, Herb Carlos are my partner in it and co-founder, so Herb, you you were in the intersection. You were there with Lee. You produced it from the beginning. We got to produce a world-class festival from day one. And a lot of the experience that I've gotten through as hospitality, I want to share. And producing a festival, bringing 15,000 people to Harlem to die, to eat, is one of the biggest gifts, right? I feel like I wanted to share those moments, you know? I've been lucky enough to be around it. I've seen it in Europe. I've seen it in America. Now I want to give it to Harlem. It's our seventh year. Obviously the pandemic forced us to pivot and do it differently, but we did it this year again. And we still actually got two more events that we're going to do in, in local restaurants. And it, it changed the restaurant community in Harlem. Those, the Harlem Eat Up weeks are some of the busiest weeks for our community. And, it, and you know, it's over a thousand people working with the festival. You know all about that. It, it's productive, you know, it's, it, and you look around and it's like, wow, this is really happening. It's a, it's a feeling that is very hard to describe. Absolutely. All right. So social impact, we've touched upon all of our guests on Beyond the Plate Give Back in many different ways. It's one of the reasons why we started the podcast to share that you and our guests are more than a dish that you put on a plate. People come into your restaurant because they love you. They love the food. They love the restaurant. Some people don't know that you get a hundred requests a week to donate this and that and come cook at this function and that function. So you've been active with a number of projects and organizations. Can you just elaborate on some of those and, and why? And start with whatever you want, CCAP, City Harvest, whatever. I tell you, you are no one without your community. And when you're lucky to be invited to several communities, I'm lucky enough to be Ethiopian, to be New Yorker, to be a Holomite, to be a Swede, you name it, to be part of the chef community, right? Well, each one comes with an opportunity, but also a responsibility. Responsibility very often is to how do we open doors up so 
this community get broader and we are part of society, right? You know, you don't think about it, but when I, we worked at Aquadit, we were minorities. Swedish food, Nordic food was not known in Manhattan at that point. So we had, you know, we had to work with it. Or so what, whatever it is, you want to broaden it. And I tell you, when this pandemic started, things like independent restaurant coalition happened, right? Things like City Harvest grew and became even more important, right? CCAP, what's going to happen to those students? So you go back to these communities and families that you built, and it also saves you. Jonathan Waxman, a dear friend to both of us, said to me, Marcus, early on said, you need to call two chefs a day because mentally you're not going to cope. You need to speak to two chefs a day, just pick in your phone book, call them up and stay in contact with them. Call different chefs because A, you need to figure out how they solved it because we don't, we, no one's going to have the answer. And uh, mentally it's good to check in on people. And he was so right, right? And sometimes you call people like Colicchio or, or, or non-chefs like Dan or whatever, but it wasn't just about calling the, the biggest guys, you know. It was also calling the sous chefs and the cooks that maybe worked for me 10 years ago. And together you're like, oh, shit. That did it that way in Texas. This one did it that way. And then a couple of months later came the choices. Some people closed and they're never going to open back up. Some people grew, grew even stronger and their takeout business will never go away now. That's part of what they're doing, right? And it wasn't just about how did we trade and how did we survive, but also some people said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go back to teaching. I feel like that's where I can do my most work. So it was, it, and for me, those are the communities that I feel so blessed to be part of and that we are constantly asked as chefs to give dinners away and do this, do that. And it's also a privilege because without that, the one thing is that is worse than being asked too much is being never being asked because then you really failed about being part of something relevant. That's a great point. I haven't said this in many episodes, but I'm going to say it for people listening because I first heard it from President Bill Clinton, whose office is right down the street from some of your restaurants. Give what you can. Share your voice, share your dollars, share your time. Char doing charity work doesn't mean you have to have all the money in the world and write a huge check. Doing charity work doesn't mean you need to take 10 hours a week to volunteer. It could mean a social media post for a cause you believe in. It could mean volunteering for 30 minutes a month. It could, you know, it could mean writing a $10 check. All that stuff goes a super long way. All right, let's do a quick speed round before we wrap it up. Yeah. What did you have for dinner last night? Oh, I cook. I cooked this all vegetarian, so like roasted vegetables. With We had this rice leftover, so I did a fried rice. With a little bit of lentils, it was delicious. I love it. I got to come back to that in a second. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Funk. Funk. <laughs> it's me. Right now, we're fermenting a lot. So there's miso with fermented butter. It's funky, man. Nice. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. If I don't have an odor at all in the kitchen, I'm like, these guys are not cooking. Interesting. You know what I mean? Like, it just, mm, I don't trust it. There's a difference, right? We love clean kitchen. But a kitchen has to have an odor because it kind of says where we're at. What are we doing here? What matters? You know what I mean? A bakery has an odor. Like, like it's like roasted flowers is everywhere, right? It's dusty and all of that stuff. Still clean. And, and a seafood restaurant definitely has a, a certain smell to it. Does not mean it, it, it smells funky at all, but it's like, okay, this is seafood. You know what you're Love it. Love it. 
What pisses you off in the kitchen? When, especially someone doesn't understand teamwork, it's like, just, I, I don't know how many talented cooks I work with that just does, they should really play tennis instead of working in a, and I love tennis. It's like, I love it, but you are so talented, but you should not do a multiple engagement because you are not suited up for that. You don't understand sharing. You don't understand sharing space. You don't understand teamwork. And it's just, we're not going to be a good fit. We're just not gonna, you know? Interesting. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Oh, that, that rhythm when it does work. Like tonight, for example, we're opening our pool. We're opening our upstairs at Red Rooster in Miami. And it took hundreds of people to make that happen, right? Hundreds. And tonight is a celebration of that because it took years to build, hundreds of people. And tonight we're going to have guests throughout because we only want to have 60 people in the room at the same time. And the coordination of, of drop moving 60 people in, stay there for 45 minutes, move them down. It's, it's coordination. So it's an event right there. Yes. <laughs> what actor is playing Marcus Samuelson in a movie? <laughs> Uh, I don't know, but I don't know. I mean, you know what? I do know a lot of actors that would be great as the screaming chefs that had in Germany or Sweden. But you know what? Uh, Somebody who who grew up around cooking is a great friend. It's Michael B. Jordan. His mom still owns a catering company. He's from Newark. So all we have to do is give, you know, give Michael to learn that Swediopian accent and he's good to go. <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. We're going to close it out with this question. You say, my mission with each project, whether it be a new restaurant, book, or TV show, is to celebrate food, the culture, and hopefully inspire others to be adventurous, learn something new, and get cooking. So somewhere, maybe in Ethiopia, maybe in Sweden, maybe in Harlem, maybe in Montreal, some kids want to be the next Marcus Samuelson. What advice do you have for those young boys or girls? Stay curious and stay hungry. With curiosity, you can learn so much and you're going to meet, it's just going to guide you to explore. You're going to meet some great mentors. And if you stay hungry, both literally hungry, you will eat and you will always learn about food. But you're also going to hungry for me means that you're going to learn from your mentors, right? So those things... The curiosity around cooking is going to take you to places that we don't even know exist, right? But that's also going to, you're going to learn a lot. I love it. Dude, thank you so much. This was an incredible season finale. I appreciate you being part of it. You are a joy to talk to. I've, man, I think I first met you nearly 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And just following what you do has been incredible. You are on the move and, and curious and you know, wanting to know what's going on out there and, and learn. And it's pretty incredible. You're, you're an incredible role model for the restaurant community, for the community, for kids. So thanks for all the work you do, man. Thank you. And congratulations on this and for all the work that you do. We, you know, I don't think there is a major food event if you and the band don't show up, right? Like where, you know, and also give my best to Rachel because she's inspired at all. So keep cooking, keep being curious and keep doing your podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Awesome. Thanks, Marcus. Have a good day. You too. Peace. Season six is a wrap, everybody. Thanks again to our finale guest, Chef Marcus Samuelson. Find more on him at marcussamuelson.com. 
To learn more about CCAP, their careers through culinary arts program, go to ccapinc.org. And for City Harvest, go to cityharvest.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media is by Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.